I want you to open your Bible to the book of Acts. We're doing an overview for those of you that have been following us on live stream. We're doing an overview of the books of the Bible. And last week we were in the fascinating, my word, what a book, the Gospel of John. I love that book. It's amazing that John, as an old man, took up some doctrinal questions in that early church and addressed them boldly and showed that Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of the living God. A powerful, powerful book and uh, written by the Holy Spirit of God, of course, but the human author was John the Beloved. And so now we're going to get into the book of Acts, and so let's read a few verses, then we'll pray and jump right into this. Acts chapter 1 and verse 1. The former treatise have I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which he was taken up, after that he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Father, help us now, I pray, and uh, bless us. Give us, dear God, the things that we have need of, and uh, speak to our hearts as we study this book. Uh, I thank you for um, uh, I thank you for this wonderful book and the encouragement it's been to me in my life, and the patterns that it sets, and the things that we learn from it in a very, very practical sense. And uh, God, we just thank you and praise you for all that you do for us and, and ask again for your blessings tonight. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. Now the book of Acts opens by making a connection with the Gospel of Luke, okay? And so we, we, we are able to um, draw from that connection that the human author that is used to pen uh, the, the, uh, the book of Acts is none other than Luke. And there's some transitions in there I'm not going to take a lot of time to deal with tonight. It's a large book and we're teaching through this in Sunday school. And so rather than, rather than getting bogged down in things that we've already covered, and we'll cover 
uh, I'm going to try to give us pretty much of a general overview in, in a, uh, of, of this book. And so what Acts is, if, if I could, you remember the silent years we talked a little while back, uh, four lessons ago about the silent years, which was the connecting point between the Old Testament prophecies and the New Testament Gospels. So that time period sort of reached out, and there were things that happened there. Remember that, remember that God in His power and in His sovereignty, God Almighty used men like Alexander the Great that was anything but a spiritual man, but He used Alexander the Great to spread Greek culture and the Koine Greek language around the world so that there was a foundation for which the, the, the uh, Greek New Testament would be written and, and that, that, that common language uh, was the vehicle through which the gospel would be spread around the world. And so uh, even during those silent years, God was active. God was working. And, and we know how Hanukkah, uh, Hanukkah took place um, you know, during uh, the cleansing of the temple and the, the miracle of the oil and those type things. And Jesus, by the way, Jesus um, observed Hanukkah. Uh, during his earthly sojourn here, uh, and the Jews do even to this day. So it's, it's, it's fascinating as you, as you see that. Well, just as that 400-year period linked together those, uh, the Old Testament and New Testament, the book of Acts is sort of that link. It, 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 it reaches out with one hand and grabs the Gospels and then reaches with the other hand and grabs hold of the epistles. Okay, now we're going to talk about this because this is very important to get settled in our mind. But in this, in this, in this book of Acts, you're going, you're, going to find, you're going to find things from the Gospels and things from the Epistles, and there's going to sort of be a period in here where everything is going on all at once. And so if you're not careful, what will happen as we transition from the Gospels and in, in, in that kingdom, early kingdom work, into the epistles, you're, you're going to find some things that can be very confusing if you don't rightly divide the word of truth. And we'll, we'll talk about that in, in just a little bit. So we, we found um, in Acts chapter 1, in verse 1, the former treatise. Okay, so he's talking about what he's already written. Have I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now jump back to Luke chapter 1. Let's just look there because I want you to see, we did this when we got into Luke, but I want you to see the link so that you don't forget it. And in case you weren't here during that time period, I want you to look back at that if you would. While you're doing that, let me remind you to pray for Betty and for Linda. And uh, let's keep them in our prayers. And I'm going to try to get an update from them on, uh, on what's going on as far as their surgery. Betty's ribs weren't broke. They were cracked, fractured. And so we're hoping that uh, they're going to heal on her own. And I think Linda was supposed to know today about her surgery. So we'll find out and see, uh, see what's happening with that. Okay, so, so in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth a declaration of those things, which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses, 
and ministers of the word. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theopolis. So the same writer, humanly, of the book of Luke is the guy that, that wrote in, in the book of Acts because he said that former treatise I've written unto you. All right, so go back with me to Acts chapter 1 because I want you to see something that I think is, a, is an important hint about what the book of Acts is all about, all right? So back in Acts chapter 1, let's read it again. The former treatise, the book of Luke, have I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus, what's the next word? Began. Both to do and to teach. Now, now listen carefully. So here's what, here's what Luke is saying. When I wrote that former treatise, which, which we call the Gospel of Luke, when I wrote that former treatise unto you, Theopolis, the intent of that letter was to write to you the beginning of the ministry on earth of Jesus, okay? Now John, we know, goes back, remember? John goes back, we talked about that Sunday. John goes back into eternity. The Word, okay? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, so John does that. But, but what Luke is doing, he's going back, there's the genealogy, there's, there's Bethlehem, there are the shepherd's field. All right, so he's saying, I'm showing you, I'm taking you back to the manger in, 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 in during that time period. I'm showing you the fulfillment of the promise made in Genesis chapter 3, where the promise kept is the babe in the manger that will bruise the head of the serpent. So John is saying, I want to take you back to the beginning of his, his ministry, his earthly ministry here, and, and that's what I wrote that book about, okay? That's what he began, okay? That, that's that's, that's uh, of all that Jesus began. That's what he began both to do and to teach. Well, what does, that, what does that tell us? It tells us that what he's writing now is what Jesus continues to do and teach. And how's he doing that? Remember? Remember what he said in John 15? He is sending the Comforter which will remind them of things they've already been taught and, and will guide them into all truth. And so now, in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is, is going to be the teacher. He's going to be the guide. He's going to be the instructor. And so John said, the first time I wrote to you, Theopolis, I'm writing to you about the beginning. Now I'm writing to you about the continuation of the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. Even though we just read, isn't it beautiful? Is it not beautiful that in the beginning of this book, which is, which is the history of the early church, in the beginning of this book, we have the promise of the return of Jesus Christ. At the beginning of all this, we have the promise that Jesus is coming again. After the heartbreak of Jerusalem and Golgotha and the scattering of the apostles and the fleeing and the fear and the denial and all of those things, and Acts chapter, uh, John chapter 21, out on the Sea of Galilee, I, Peter's I go a fishing, the disciples I go with you, fish all night, caught nothing, okay? After all of that failure and all of that fear, now we have the promise. Hey, guys, listen to me. This same Jesus that you've seen going to heaven is going to come again. Another fascinating thing is how we read it just a moment ago, how that they said, Lord, at this time, is now the time? Are you going to set your kingdom up now? Okay, we've been through all that. Are you going to throw off the bands of the Roman government now? 
And so even then they're struggling with their understanding. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. That's not, that's not what we're here for. And then he, ascends, he, he, he empowers them um, or talks about the empowering of them and, and what the purpose of that is. And, and then he ascends into heaven. So there's that beautiful promise. And so what we're fighting, listen, th look, this is what the book of Acts says. Go, jump with me. Let's, Acts chapter 1. Look at, I want to show you something. Look at Acts chapter 1. Um, all right, let's look in verse, um, well, let's jump to verse 12, all right? Let's pick up where we left off. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount of, called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, they went up. What does it mean, a Sabbath day journey? It means that's the, di on, that's the length of distance that you were allowed to travel on the Sabbath day. You could only go so far. And so you can stand in Jerusalem and see the Mount Olivet, the Mount of Olives right there. So it's not far off, but you weren't allowed to travel further than that on a Sabbath day. There was a limitation, all right? Uh, look, look, in, look in verse 13. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room and where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotes and Judas the brother of James. These all continue with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brethren. Now, watch me. This list of people is the last you're going to hear about some of them. They don't, you won't see them again. Okay, we understand that James, James John's brother will be beheaded, okay? So in the early, in the early chapters of the book of um, Acts, you find the unique pairing of James, excuse me, of John uh, the beloved and Peter. John the son of thunder, but now he's, a, he's the gospel, he's the, he's the apostle of love. And Peter, Peter the confident, put foot in mouth right away as quickly as you can type confident guy, okay? But, but we find them in the book of Acts being paired together. But suddenly John will drift off. We'll pick John up later in the latter years of his life when he's, he dies at 93. So when he enters his 90s, all these people are dead, Paul included, and he writes the Gospel of John in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and the book of Revelation, okay? But, but for the most part, this list that we've been given here, you don't, you don't, you don't find a lot about Philip. You're going to see him. But, but, but then Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and Simon Zelotes, and, but you know what happens to them? They scatter around the world literally, and every one of them die for their faith. Okay? So, so the point of the matter is uh, here, when, when, you, when you read this, um, uh, this book, uh, you're, you're going to find out that a lot of the human characters, it's called the Acts of the Apostles, but they're very little said about the Apostles. Why is it called that? Because God is showing us now that all that Jesus began to do in the Gospel of Luke, the first treatise, is now continued through human instruments, the apostles. Paul, okay, who's an apostle chosen out of time, he said. James, he's beheaded. Peter, 
Stephen. So God is saying now, what Jesus began, He will now continue to do through the men that the Holy Spirit trains and teaches and guides into truth. And, and, and so it's, a, it's, it's fascinating. Acts is a history book of the early church, and I love history. So I love this book. It's a fascinating book to me, but it's a fragmented history. Okay? This isn't everything that happened. There's a whole lot more meat to go on the bones, some that can be picked up from history and things like that, but this is what God chose to give. This is the, this is the only divinely inspired history of the early church that God gives us because there are divine lessons that God wants us to, to get from them. And, uh, and, and the history is one of almost constant expansion. If you read this book, you'll find out this. You'll find out that in just a little over a decade, just a little over uh, 10 years, the, the gospel has expanded uh, into four Roman uh, provinces. It's gone into Galatia, it's gone into Macedonia, it's gone into Achaia and Asia, and churches have been planted in every major city of those Roman provinces. And so it's a rapid expansion that's going on. You see this little, look, look, you, you, the church starts out uh, with 12 guys, okay? That's, that's the beginning of that New Testament church, and Jesus is the head of it. He's the leader of it. And uh, he's ta he talks about... He talks about the power of the church and how that the gates of hell won't prevail against it. He's not talking about something future. He's talking about something right then. Okay? And, and, and so um, it goes from that to 120 uh, in the upper room. And it's amazing as it goes from 120 in the upper room, then on the day of Pentecost, as Peter preaches, it goes to 3,000. And if you read the book of Acts, listen, it goes, it, 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 it's added to, it's multiplied over and over again. To the point, everybody watch me, to the point, to the point that historians will tell you that in the early days of the church, there were times, there were times that the church grew to in excess of 25,000 people. Now, they didn't have a giant megachurch building, okay, where everybody met. But, but in Jerusalem, that church, it was explosive in its growth. And there were, there were assemblies meeting all over, all over the city of Jerusalem. Now, in this history, okay, early history, in this history of, of the early church, there are going to be some people that step onto center stage that we're going to learn about. Let me just mention a few of them briefly. First of all, there's Saul of Tarsus. He was the man that made havoc. That's the words. He made havoc of the church. Do you, do you, know, do you know what it means to make havoc? havoc? If you study it, this is what it means. So you can go in. If, if I say I'm going to make havoc of something, and that means I just go in and disrupt it. Okay, That's an easier word. That's not what that word meant in the power of how God is using it here. It means, it means to make filth of. So what it means is that, is that Saul treated the church like it was filth. He treated the people of God like they were filth. He treated the assemblies like they were filth. And so it's a, it's a very... And he calls himself later, looking back on on who he used to be before he met Christ on the road to Damascus. 
and he refers to himself back there as the chief of sinners. Okay, why? Well, he did meth, you know, he had a pool hall where drugs were sold. No. Why does he say I was the chief of sinners? Because of how he treated, because of how he treated the people of God. Okay. Then Stephen comes on. Stephen is the faithful servant that we find first in Acts chapter 6, and then later he becomes the first martyr for his faith. And boy, do we see Jesus in Stephen. We sure do. Then there was Peter, the once failing disciple who went out and wept bitterly after denying Jesus three times. And now he preaches the Word of God on the day of Pentecost along with the others. 3,000 get saved. And Peter now, Peter now, that leadership comes out in him and he preaches the Word of God with boldness, uh, the boldness of a spirit-filled man. We find the Apostle Paul. Who is Paul? Paul is, Paul is, the, <laughs> he's the former terrorist. Paul, the Apostle Paul is the used-to-be Saul. Okay, and in him we see the radical transformation. Can I put emphasis on the word radical? That may be an overword used today. But when you see Saul and you see Paul, you got to say, that's radical, man. That is a radical change in the life. And you know what it does for me? Listen to me. It gives me hope that there can be change in the life of any human being, no matter how far gone they are, once they submit to the authority and the reality and the person of who Jesus is, God can take them from the, from the gutter to the uttermost. I mean, God can radically change people's lives. I've seen some people saved before that had committed murder. But once Jesus came into their heart, it's amazing what, what, what God does for them. And we talked about that a little bit on Sunday morning and, and, and he's the primary personality that God uses with the gospel to penetrate the pagan world. Then there's Barnabas. I love Barnabas because Barnabas is the son of consolation. He's a man of encouragement. He's at uh, first on center stage. God's going to use him to partner with Paul. Okay, They're, they're partners. They get together. They work together on that first missionary journey. And then Barnabas, who's an encourager, steps off of center stage into the shadows and he begins to mentor, he begins to mentor um, uh, John Mark. And so here's a guy that doesn't have to have the spotlight. He's just willing to help and work and invest himself in individual lives to help bring them about. And, and, and then, look, Romans chapter 16 there's an incredible list of people uh, whose names can be found scattered throughout. Just briefly mentioned, Aquila and Priscilla and different people just briefly mentioned throughout the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts, that make a brief appearance and yet leave their imprint, especially in the life of Saul, who became Paul. And so it teaches us this, you don't have to be center stage for God to use. You don't even have to have a prominent name. In fact, you don't even have to be remembered for God to use you for His glory and the furtherance of what He's doing. Now, this is vital, okay? So please don't miss what I'm going to say. You already know this, but I'm going to say it again because you, everybody, everybody in this room tonight needs to hear what I'm about to say. So listen carefully. 
The book of Acts is a transitional book. Okay. Watch me. Remember what I said a minute ago? The Gospels, the Epistles. The transition between that and this. Listen to me carefully. You do not get your doctrine from the transitional period. You get your doctrine from the epistles. This transition is history. So what's happening in this transition? There are sign gifts that God is giving us that will fade away. They're not, they're not permanent. They're extraordinarily temporary. By the way, go back and study this. Um, when Moses and Joshua were around, you know what happened? There were unusual miracles that took place then, but guess what happened? They ended when? When the Word of God came. In the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, there, were, there was a streak, if I could call it, a splurge of miracles that took place. But when did that end? It ended when, when the prophetic writings, the, 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 the Word of God came then those miracles ended. You'll find the same thing during the time of Daniel. There are miraculous things that happen in spots, but then the Word takes over, and there's no more need for the miracle that adds credibility to the Word that follows it. Okay? So what you have in this transitional period, Gospels, Epistles, Acts, what you have during this transitional period in the book of Acts is you have sign miracles that are going to add credentials as two things are introduced into the Jewish world of unbelievers. Number one, the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God that they knew nothing about. So much so that they said, these people must be drunk. No, no, they're not drunk. They're not drunk. The Holy Spirit of God is moving on them, okay? The, the second thing that's being introduced that God is giving sign gifts of the validity of it is the New Testament church that's being planted around the world, and these sign gifts, particularly to the unregenerate Jewish people that have now been scattered and are all over these parts of the Gentile world, these sign gifts prove to them. Now, when you study the book of 1 Corinthians, there's two types of gifts that are seen, okay? There are service gifts and there are sign gifts. Service gifts are permanent. God grants people gifts of administration and different, thing, different service gifts. I don't have a list to read to you, but they're different service gifts, things that are for the service of the New Testament church. The sign gifts are simply to add validity okay, to what God is doing during this transitional time, and the sign gifts are all gone. Now let me show you. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Okay? Everybody look in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. How many of you are here tonight? Can I see your hand? If you're here. Okay, good. Just waiting on a few more of you to show up. Okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Watch this. I'm not going to read the whole chapter because we don't have time for our study tonight. But let's look at verse number 8. Charity which we've said is love with its work clothes on, okay? It's active love. That's the word. It's active love. Charity does what? Does what? Okay, look at me. When everything else is done, 
and everything else has lost its impact and its power, when there are no skills and gifts and anything else, the one thing you can count on is that love, active, God-giving love. For God so loved the world that He gave. Listen to me. When everything else has failed, love never fails. It's always effective. I can't sing to you, but I can love you. I, I may be so crippled that I cannot truly serve you, but I can love you. When, when, when I have nothing left to give you, when my pockets are empty, when, 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 my, when my body is broken, even when my tongue cannot articulate, the one thing I can always give you is love. So, so charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall do what? Fail. fail. Okay. So prophecies are going to fail. I, I didn't write that. God did. All right, let's look on. Whether there be tongues, they shall... Wow. Just take those words. Prophecy shall fail. Tongue shall cease. Whether there be knowledge. That's not talking about book knowledge. That's talking about, that's talking about um, uh, knowledge of coming, coming events that aren't written in the Bible that God gives you. It's, it's a spiritual insight to where, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're able to see and grasp things that have never yet happened. It's, that, it's, it's the foreknowledge of God that God can cue us in on. Whether there be knowledge, it shall what? Vanish away. Now look at me. That's about as blunt. That's about as straightforward. When we were kids, we double-dog dared people. You ever had somebody say that? I double-dog dare you. We did the dumbest things imaginable. A dare was one thing. But son, when you threw down a double-dog dare, I mean, you were either a coward or you went ahead and jumped off the cliff. One of the two. So, I don't know. But I, I look, here, here, this is what I'd say to people. I double-dog dare you to study the words fail, cease, and vanish. They're hard-hitting, and they leave no doubt whatsoever that there's going to come a time when prophecies and tongues and knowledge, they're gone. Why? Because they're temporary. Well, he doesn't just leave us hanging. In the next verse, he says, but, here's that conjunction that connects the two, but when that which is perfect, he didn't say he which is perfect. Look at me. This isn't, this, is not be, this isn't written about the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's not what this is about. You keep the context of what this is writing about, and, and, and he's talking about things that are partial and things that are complete. When that which is perfect, Jesus isn't, has never been made perfect. Okay, he's, he, There's no need to complete Jesus. Okay, So when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in what? Part shall be done away with, all right? So, so you, have, you have the perfect and you have the partial. Everything before the completion of Genesis to Revelation, they're all partial. Just a little chunk. Here's Isaiah. There's a chunk for Isaiah. Chunk's a southern word. You understand what I'm talking about? Okay. So they're, 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 here, look, here, here's, here, look. Here's, here's Isaiah. Here's your part. Here's your partial. Okay. I'm going to give to Obadiah something else, Amos something else. 
Some of these people prophesied to the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Some of them brought hard prophecies against Gog and Magog and, and, and man, the Edomites and good night. They were nailing people all over the place for how they had treated the people of God. Okay. So, so what you do is like, here's your part of the puzzle, 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 here's your part of the puzzle. Let's all meet at the front table and let's put our pieces of the puzzle together. And so Obadiah comes in Jeremiah and Isaiah and Zephaniah and Zechariah and Haggai and all these people, they bring their parts of the puzzle and they put them all together. And you know what happens? God said, when the puzzle is complete, I'm not giving any more partial pieces out because they won't fit. So when that which is, check this out and see if I'm not right. People that believe that prophecies are still in existence, that tongues are still in existence, and that future knowledge is still in existence, do not believe that we have a perfect Bible. That's the one thing they all have in common, is they do not believe they hold in their hands the infallible, perfect, God-breathed book. And I do. And so when that which is perfect has come, then all the partial stuff will be done away with. And, and, and that's why, that's why, listen to me, that's why when Oral Roberts comes along and says, God locked me in a tower and he told me if you don't give me a million dollars, he's going to kill me. <laughs> well, that don't fit with the book. That don't fit with the book. When, 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 when people are walking around acting like they have miracle working power and that they have revelations and prophecy. You know, you know some of the stuff, if you, if you, if you listen to it, it, it doesn't come about. God told me that in the year 2023, the rapture would take place. We're still here. Okay? So where's that prophecy? By the way, in the Old Testament, they would have been stoned when their prophecy didn't come true. You'd have took them out and they would have been stoned to death. So they better thank God that they're prophesying in the New Testament era, not the Old Testament era. They'd be goners, okay? But do you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't fit with this book. Lay the perfect puzzle down, and when somebody runs up and says, Thus saith God, you can say, No, it don't fit. We, we got a perfect. We got it. So everything that we know about God and we know from God comes from this book. Now, every now and then somebody will question me on, on this thing with tongues especially because it's, it's such a... See, when you don't rightly divide the truth and you don't realize that the book of Acts is a transitional book and the things that were transitioned in the book of Acts, they're done away with, okay? They, they've ceased... Then somebody will say to me, well, you can say whatever you want to say, but I experience. So what you're saying to me is that you place your experience over. The, I don't care what the Bible says. I place my experience over the Bible. And what I say to them, I said it to somebody just recently. Lady I talked to just recently, she said, well, I, I, talk, I spoke in tongues. I don't care what you did. You can stand on your hand and yodel, you know, zippity-doo-dah if you want to. That don't mean anything to me because you're not my final authority. This book is. So you can tell me you've spoken anything you want to speak in, but the reality of the matter is I'll always choose the Bible over your experiences because a lot of things can happen to create an experience. Okay? If I experience something, you know what I do? I go to the book. I've had some crazy dreams. Chip, why did you try to kill me the other night? No, I'm kidding. No, I've, I've had some crazy dreams. So what do I do with my dreams? Why? 
That was the most unusual thing. I hung out with my dad. I, I went fishing with my dad a couple of weeks ago, and when I woke up, it was like, it was amazing. I felt like I'd spent time with him. Well, did you see your dad? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, but it was sure good. It was a fun dream. I want to go back to sleep and pick it up where I left it off, you know. So, so, so I, everything that happens in my life, I filter it through this book. And if it doesn't pass the filter, then I don't take it as divinely given by God. Now, one other thing I think is vitally important, and that is this. Tongues in the Bible were always an intelligible language. Well, wait a minute, Pastor, it talks about the unknown tongue. Yep, that's a language that nobody knew. Nobody was there that, that knew that. How many of you know French? Okay, we get one that does. So if I said to you, je vais très bien, merci et toi, you don't know what I'm talking about except for Cindy, who happens to be my interpreter here tonight for this service, okay? So, so what is that to you? That's an unknown tongue. But if I, if I don't have any ability to speak it, and all of a sudden I say to Cindy, je vais très bien, merci et toi, and I'm like, what did I just say? And Cindy says, I can interpret that and she interprets it for you, then, then that's a language. It's a language. Let me, let me give you a verse of Scripture. Acts chapter 2, talking about the, the day of Pentecost, when tongues was given. Acts chapter 2, look in your Bible, verse number 6. Boy, everybody's catching on that man alive, something's happening, people are getting saved. Now, when this was noised abroad, verse 6, and the multitude came together, and were confounded. What confounded them? Because that every man heard them speak in his own, what's the last word? What? Language. Do you know what tongues is? If I said, I'm, I'm going to speak to you in my native tongue. Okay, that don't mean I got three tongues and I'm just going to choose my native one to speak. No, 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 no. It's not talking about this. It's talking about language. Each man heard them speak in his own language. English, okay, Russian, French, German, that kind of language. So that's important to note. Now, let me make some applicational thoughts for us tonight in, in the time that we have remaining, okay? Let me, let me draw some practical things out of the book of Acts that I think this is what Acts teaches me, and I hope that maybe it'll be a help to you. First of all, and there's only three, but first of all, this is what I learned in the book of Acts. I learned that the main thing remained the main thing. Okay? The main thing remained the main thing. Go to, go to Matthew chapter 28. Everybody jump to Matthew 28. Let me show you a couple of verses of Scripture. Matthew chapter 28. Verse 18, all right? Here's what we call the great what? The great commission. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So we call that the Great Commission. Now, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, they are recommissioned. 
with the same commission. In a different language, but it's the same commission. Uh, but you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witness un witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and, and uh, in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. So what does that teach me? It teaches me that the main thing in the Gospels, even through that transition, remained the main thing. Okay, The main thing was the main thing, and it ought to always be the main thing, even in the day and age in which we live. 1901, 1901, it's a year that I love. I wasn't alive then. But George Hendy, who was a former motorcycle racer, got together with Oster, Oscar Hedstrom, a watchmaker, and they decided that they would begin a business together. And so they signed out a handwritten contract on the back of an envelope, and in 1901, the Indian Motorcycle Company was started. By the end of, of 1902, uh, they started two prototypes in 1901. By the end of 1902, they had 143 motorcycles built. By the end of the next year, 1903, uh, they, they doubled that to 376. In the year 1906, they began building their motorcycles in a uh, 74,000 square foot warehouse in Springfield, Massachusetts, they call the Wigwam. And they began to just, I mean, it, it was crazy. 19, by 1913, uh, they built 32,000 bikes and earned a profit of $1.3 million, which in that day was a whole lot more uh, than it, than it uh, would be today. was a whole lot less than it would be today. But like every business that starts, now stay with me because I'm going somewhere. Every business that starts, they faced a challenge, and the challenge was Ford Motor Company. Ford started out with a Model T, and, and at first, motorcycles, they, they kept their niche, but then because of the assembly line, the Model T began to cost less and less. In fact, it got to a point that by 1916, you could buy a Model T for $345. And a motorcycle, an Indian motorcycle, cost 375 So you could carry more people and more supplies and everything else, and it seemed like the car was more practical than the motorcycle. Now, that's, that's nauseating to me, why people would rather ride in a cage than in the motorcycle. But that's, I'm just telling you what happened. Ford sold a half a million cars that year. Indian sold only 22,000. So what did Indian do? They set about making what at that time was the best motorcycle ever made into something either, even better. They improved the transmission. They went to gear, gear shift transmission, two and three gear transmission. They improved the, the frame. Uh, they built a better engine. Uh, the oil flow, it was all different. They just, they, they, they did it so much better. And projections were that by the end of 1919 that they would be producing uh, they would be producing 60,000 motorcycles. But then Oscar Hedstrom and George Hendy both retired. And when they lost their visionaries, the guy that took over, um, he was the head of an electric company. And rather than seeing Indian Motorcycle Company as the place where the best motorcycles in the world were built, 
he saw it as a manufacturer. And the wigwam now, instead of just making motorcycles, they were going to kick out all kind of stuff. So they built shock absorbers for cars. They, they, they built chainsaws. They started developing outboard motors. And in fact, they actually were developing a better model of the refrigerator. Okay. And what happened was they lost their way. And if you study Indian motorcycles, they, they, they made some comebacks and they got involved in the war effort and they're just a big story that I won't go into. But here's what happened to the Indian Motorcycle Company. The Indian Motorcycle Company lost their purpose, they lost their way, and the main thing stopped being the main thing and, 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 and it got shipped into all, different people bought the Indian emblem and the, and, and, and Indian was really truly not even existence until, until the year 2012 when Polaris bought it and they're now making the motorcycle again with the quality that it was. So this is the lesson in keeping the main thing the main thing. The danger for the church is that we get sidetracked. And here's the thing, here's the thing that happens in churches. We don't, we don't get sidetracked by wild, crazy, sinful things. Most of the things we get sidetracked in are good things. We enter the entertainment industry. And we decide that rather than really focusing on soul winning and telling people about Jesus, that we're going to entertain them when we bring them to church. And so, so what happens is we, we lose our way. Jesus said in John 4.34, My meat is to do the will of Him that sent me and to finish His work. He's stating His mission. What is His mission? To do the will of God. That's what Jesus is saying. That's, that, and by the way, the times of popularity didn't change the main thing for Him. The times of persecution didn't change the main thing for Him. Even His disciples came to Him and said, Why don't you set up your kingdom now? But it didn't change the main thing for Jesus. And I just want to tell you, as a, as a church today, as a church today, this is no time to try and build a better refrigerator. We've got to keep the main thing the main thing. And I love the fellowships, and I love all the things that we have going, and we will continue those and try to get better at those. But we can never forget that the only reason that God has placed South Valley Baptist Church in, 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 in the south part of the valley the Treasure Valley of Idaho, is that we can get the gospel out to a world that is in darkness and they need to know that Jesus died for them and that God loves them and that God will forgive them and that He will save their soul. We don't exist for any other reason. It's not so that you and I can hug each other and see each other in fellowship. That's, that's icing on the cake. But the cake is the gospel. And that's why we're here and, and, and the Great Commission is still our greatest mission, and we have to keep the main thing the main thing. Now, the second thing that I learned from this, in a practical sense, is simply this. God uses different people in His kingdom. Now, I'm not going to take the time to give you a list of all the apostles that Jesus called, but boy, is there a melting pot of personalities and backgrounds and, and uh, striking differences uh, among them. It, it, it's just the backgrounds were so varying. The personality traits were so different. And that's the beauty of how God works. Even 
though the focus and the purpose remains the same, the, the, the people that God uses, they have different personalities, different ethnicities, different talents, contrasting backgrounds. We come from different parts of the country. The customs that you grew up are, are different than mine. My grandkids are here in, in Cheston and Tara, who I love greatly, have failed to teach them some things <laughs> that are necessary. I was talking to my, one of my grandkids the other day, and I said, son, that'll key. And he said, what's that, Papa? I said, that'll key. And he said, what is a key? I said, son, do I have to slow this thing down? That will kill you. That'll kill you. And, and I said, I'm saying? And he just stared at me, and I said, that means know what I'm saying? You just, don't waste your time in the South drawing out all these words, just zan. That's all you got to do, zan. Maddie Sue knows that language now. I trained her and have taught her, and she uses it frequently. But I'm just, I look, all kind of different backgrounds and traits. Boy, what a New Testament church, wasn't it? Son, I mean, it's amazing. The people that were all brought in there. And I'm reminded that God uses all kinds of different people. It's so clearly seen in the Bible. God used Elijah. He was a country boy from an, obscure, from an obscure village out in the middle of nowhere. He used Elisha, who was at home walking in palaces and was on a first-name basis with kings and the political mover and shakers of his day. He used Simon, who was once a militant zealot that was bent and dedicated to the destruction of the Roman government. And he used Matthew, who was a traitor. He was a Benedict Arnold. He was the guy that the Jews hated because he didn't hate who they hated. He actually worked and was employed by the Roman government. In the book of Acts, we see Peter. Peter was a Palestinian Jew that the world considered ignorant and unlearned. He was a fisherman by trade, a disciple of Jesus. Then he arrested Paul on the road to Damascus. Paul was a Hellenistic Jew. He was considered by the world to be a scholar. Some thought him a genius. He was an educated Pharisee. He was a, a Greek cosmopolitan. He was a Roman citizen. And God used both those men in this transitional book. Of the 18 addresses that are given in the book of Acts, seven are delivered by Peter and seven are delivered by Paul. And even the miracles of those two men are equally balanced in, in the book of Acts. When I was a young man, when I was a young man, I went to a meeting with my pastor and it was a big, large meeting. It was a tri-state meeting. In fact, that's what it was called, the tri-state fellowship. And so we went together, and there were a lot of different preachers that preached. And I'll never forget, a guy from the Carolina Low Country got up. And he, was, he, he spoke in, in what was called back then the Geechee dialect. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. But it's the Geechee dialect. And son, he slaughtered the king's English. I mean, you had to focus you actually needed an interpreter. I mean, it was, the only people that spoke that way were low country South Carolinians from the Geechee country. And he just butchered it. I mean, when it was over with, we met out in the lobby waiting to go out and 
for an afternoon meal. And my pastor said to a group of us young preachers that were there with him, he said, so what would you all think of that? Well, in my mind, I'm going to be real transparent with you. In my mind, I was thinking, what a hick, son. That guy, he couldn't put a sentence together. He butchered the king's English, you know. And I just, I, I was sort of chuckling like an arrogant idiot in those early days. I was sort of chuckling like, <laughs> thank God he gave me enough wisdom not to say what I was thinking. Or I would have been on a skewer somewhere being barbecued that afternoon. I didn't say a thing, but my pastor said to us after that pregnant pause when nobody else stuck their hand in the cockatrice den, uh, my pastor said to us, he said, you know what that teaches you boys? It teaches you that God uses all different kinds. And my word did the Holy Spirit of God smite me with those words. And my pastor followed it up with this. He said, and I'm sure glad he does or he wouldn't ever use me. I have, that is a lesson that to this day I've never forgotten. And in fact, I rejoice in it because I'm so thankful that God, though men, men may, God doesn't insist on identicalness. God, God doesn't, God doesn't uh, force us to all be just alike. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. He uses imperfect people to do His work. And in fact, none of us are grade A lumber. And if you'll read Hebrews chapter 11, every one of those people mentioned there were not grade A lumber. It's could, we call it the hall of faith. It could be the hall of failure. Because God uses failures. We're all failures in one degree or another. So I'm thankful for the fact that God uses different people in His kingdom. Last of all, I want you to go to Matthew 16. Here's my last point. I'm going to close with this. It's the last thing I learned, and it's an important one. Matthew 16, verse 18. Jesus has gone through a discussion with, with His apostles. And he said, whom do men say that I am? And they, they start talking and, and he says, And I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, that was the profession that Peter just made, that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon this rock I will build my church. Watch this statement. Here's a promise. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay. This was done at Caesarea Philippi before the temple of Pan, which was the epicenter of pagan worship in the ancient world. So he's standing before the place where it was actually believed in that day, and I've been there. In fact, I was just there twice this year during my, my Holy Land trips, where the, where the ancient world actually fought that cave right there. That's the gates of hell. That cave leads into hell. That was their belief. And so he stands at that place which is a massive rock, and he says, Upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, let me summarize and listen carefully. The book of Acts is a verification that what he said was true. Think of the onslaught of hell that was hurled at the infant New Testament church. 
They're being stoned to death. They're being threatened. They're being arrested. They're being hauled off to prison. They're being martyred. I mean, it's unbelievable. This, wait a minute. This is an established church. This is, this is the early church. This is the infant church. And you might think that they would fold after being hunted and hounded and ran out of town. And ultimately, every man in this book that served God was martyred for his faith. But let's fast forward, could we? Let's fast forward to 2023. Wednesday night, December, the last week of the year. Guess where we're at? We're at a New Testament church in the South Valley of Idaho. And we're studying the Word of God in freedom. And we're, we're, we're reading His Word. And we are making inroads into a world of darkness with the light of the gospel. The onslaught has not lessened one iota. He's just taken on new tactics. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but, uh, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Now look at me. We wrestle not against who? Who? Okay, now look at me. If it was flesh and blood, it'd be a lot easier. You know why? Because you can punch flesh and blood. You can point your finger at flesh and blood and say, shut your mouth, I don't like it. Okay? If it's flesh and blood, then you get to see who you're doing battle with, and it makes it a lot easier. But what he's saying is here, no, 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 no. Your enemy is unseen, invisible. Now it may take, he, may take on, he may take on flesh that he uses in his battle against us, but behind every flesh battle that you have in your life, please listen to me, Behind every flesh battle you have in your life and I have in my life, there's an unseen power. Slap the flesh. Fight the flesh. Help yourself. You will waste your time and you will have no satisfaction from it at all. Do you know why? Because whatever damage you do to the flesh and blood that you're angry at, the unseen spiritual power it just smiles and continue his attack because he suckered you into hitting somebody that's not really behind the person behind the scenes. Now, Satan, don't you think, is aware of the signs of the times? You know him and I know him. Don't you think he does? Do you, do you, reckon, that maybe, do you reckon that maybe he knows that his time is short on this earth? So he's fighting with a fury. Listen to me. He's fighting with a fury that I've never seen in my lifetime. Over the last five years of my life, I've gotten more calls from young pastors around the country that are telling me families in my church are coming unglued. People that were faithful, faithful members are now at each other's throat. They're busting up. They're, I've had young guys call me and weep and say, I don't know what I'm going to do. I've had guys tell me, 
my church, my church, I've never seen anything like it was happening in our family units. I've even counseled young pastors whose very homes are falling apart. It's the last fury and rage of a roaring lion who's trying to do everything he can to ruin what God's doing on this earth. You better be sober, vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And here's the thing that he knows that we forget. He's defeated. The gates of hell will not prevail against what Jesus is building. And your home is a part of a church. Okay, so, so that promise is yours and mine. Don't be afraid of Satan. Just stay real close to the Lord. And He's able to get us through these things. Father, we love You. We thank You for the book of Acts and the joy it is to read of the early days and the things that the storms, the opposition, the persecution that You brought them through. I pray now You'll bless South Valley Baptist Church and help us to always remain faithful to You. And we'll thank You and praise You for what You do. In the name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen.